Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have a return visit from Andre Abrahamian, who is now a senior fellow at Pacific Forum and a U.S. Foreign Service officer, and he'll be talking about his new book, Being in North Korea, which was published last year, 2020, by Brookings Institution Press. The seemingly simple question, what is it like in North Korea, is not actually very simple at all, and of course yields vastly different answers from Korean citizens when compared to the tourists, aid workers, business people, academics and diplomats who enter the country as outsiders. Among this broad latter group, moreover, a variety of levels of experience and engagement with DPRK life equips some with more insightful and interesting things to say than others. Fortunately for us, Andre Abrahamian ranks among the latter group of much more qualified people. Being in North Korea is a highly readable and revealing tapestry of insights Abrahamian has derived from dozens of visits to North Korea, many of these as an organiser of workshops training local people in business. With a keen sense for the social dynamics which emerge in interactions both among Koreans and between Koreans and outsiders, and touching on a wide variety of topics from leaders' summits to illicit love affairs, the book offers a trove of fresh insights into social, political and economic life in North Korea, whilst also providing clear-eyed and well-grounded interpretations of more familiar topics. Abrahamian has years of experience in the country, repeatedly being told that things are not allowed, often in ways that conceal the very existence of these prohibitions, and his account is frank about the limitations of its conclusions. Yet this is far from a portrait of some eternally mysterious forbidden kingdom, and while offering nuanced views of change over time in the country, the book displays a refreshing consciousness of the long tradition of exoticizing descriptions of Korea penned by distinctly unself-aware gentlemen travellers and rejects more recent media fetishization of improbable events in the DPRK. A self-effacing voice, social scientific sensibility, and the fact that years of repeat visits have inevitably yielded moments of real clarity thus combine here into an account which, whilst not glossing over the perplexing complexities of a society which looks so anomalous in today's world, does go a significant way to answering questions over what life is like there. But the author is here to tell us more about all of this, and so it's a great pleasure to say, Andre Abrahamian, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for that suspiciously generous introduction. Um, well, <laughs> you're a man. Uh, you're a man who is rarely suspicious without grounds. So uh, I'm sure. I'm sure there is good reason. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about how being in North Korea really does uh, create suspicion uh, between people that would normally not take place. But before that, I do need to say that uh, recently I did join the U.S. Uh, government. I'm a State Department official now, um, and. That means that uh, I need to clarify that any opinions I share on this podcast are my own and not uh, shared necessarily by the State Department or the U.S. government. Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah. Thank you for thank you for clarifying. Um, well, uh, before we uh, kind of delve into the views that uh, that the book expresses, which uh, also indeed are your own and and it's a deeply personal account, um, perhaps I could begin by asking you to sort of refresh us, I guess, for anyone who didn't listen to your previous appearance um, on your background and how you came to be interested in North Korea and I guess anything else that you are interested in in general. Yeah, I was interested in the Korean Peninsula generally, I think you could say, uh, and sort of stumbled into a PhD and was considering what topic would hold my interest for five or six years or however long it was going to take. Um, and at the time, um, in the mid-2000s, as the nuclear crisis was kind of, uh, or the second nuclear crisis, we might want to call it, was uh, developing in earnest, uh, I felt like I was surrounded by or subsumed by media that was just kind of getting it wrong uh, with descriptions of the country that just couldn't be uh, accurate or um, honest in some cases. And uh, I thought that would be an interesting uh, avenue to explore. Um, And then, so that's what I did. Uh, And at the nadir of that, that process, um, 
And anyone who's done a PhD knows that there is <laughs> there is a bottom, <laughs> a rock bottom at some point. Uh, I thought, you know, I, I've never even been to this country. Am I really going to set myself up to read about it and talk about it for the rest of my professional career or without having seen it directly once? So I booked um, a tour and uh, went to visit in February 2010. Uh, with Choreo Tours, actually. And um, I, I found it, it did captivate me and, and seeing it directly did kind of reinvigorate the, the academic uh, pursuit that I was engaged in. And then um, just a few months later, I happened to be introduced to this young Singaporean guy, Jeffrey C., who was starting a nonprofit called Chosen Exchange, uh, to train North Koreans in economic policy and business. And uh, immediately I, I was like, let me, how can I get involved? How can I help? I want to, I want to be, I want to interact more with these difficult to know and understand people rather than sort of be at a distance the way most analysts or academics are. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So you did sort of move, I guess, from very early in your, in your personal experience of the country from, academic study and, and engagement with yeah a textual i guess version of the country and what it was like to in person um uh, active yeah uh, interaction with people and 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 part as part of this uh, ngo project uh, actually going to the country pretty often um the book discusses your kind of status as an engager i guess one of two kinds of people that you broadly categorize um in in their attitudes towards north korea as outsiders um what was it about those early experiences specifically that kind of put you on the track of of being an engager which i think you know you're you are self-identifying as here um rather than someone with a more hawkish i guess attitude um that's that yeah that's a tricky question i don't know if it was I, I think if you are willing to go there in the first place for whatever reason, whether it is a, at a tour, as a tourist or in pursuit of some kind of uh, deeper or more complicated interactions, um, you, you're probably an engager already. Uh, you, you, whether consciously or not, have weighed up the the pros and cons of being there and cooperating with a, a system that is, you know, truly risible in many ways, uh, and you've decided to go ahead and do it. So, um, I suppose I was already thinking along those lines, but then I thought very, very specifically, in in that period from. 2010, especially to about 2015, uh, the country really was experimenting with economic policy changes that uh, I thought could lead to a better version of itself. Um, and so I thought it was worth supporting uh, those changes, trying to empower the, the people that were pursuing those, those changes. Mm, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense, and I guess uh, you're right that well, yeah, thanks. anyone going, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. of course, you're always right. Um, but going into the yeah, the kind of country in the first place, um, I guess uh, conditions or is a precondition to, for people wanting to be sort of somehow personally involved, maybe. But you've certainly taken this well beyond uh, what the vast majority of people who who visit uh, on a one off or even even on a number of occasions as tourists do. So that takes us into the book quite quite neatly. I mean, you've already kind of summarized, I guess, some of the things that, uh, you know, fill the first chapters of the book in, in providing us with with some background. Um, but could you give us a bit more sense of what these kind of conditions were that you say were changing in the country in that period 2010 to 2015? And what it was that made Chosun Exchange uh, a, po a possibility, and, and what it was that kind of yeah, allowed this to to be something that you could even consider. Because I think most people would assume you couldn't set up an NGO that would go in and train people to do business. Mm. Yeah, the um, well, the, the Kim Jong Il era was was really defined by um, very consciously uh, putting the military first, and uh, Kim Jong Il was never terribly interested in economics. He was incredibly adept at power politics and geopolitics, but um, not strong on the economy. Um, and it was really 
in many ways abandoned for much of his tenure. Um, and as Kim Jong-un came to the, the fore, uh, that began to change a little bit. Um, clearly a much younger person who I think recognized that long-term survival for his family and his country depended on making some, some changes to the, the rules that ordinary citizens and elites operate under. Um, so uh, that shift began, I think, before Kim Jong-il died in 2011, but then really was pursued in, in earnest, uh, well, in earnest in North Korean terms um, after uh, Kim Jong-un took the reins. So um, economic policy incredibly sensitive in North Korea, as I discuss at length in the book. Uh, and there's never been a moment as there was in China and Vietnam, where the party officially and very loudly proclaimed that that they were on a new course, a course that was going to rely on markets to drive uh, economic growth. Um, the North Koreans could never quite admit that that's what they were doing, even though in many ways it, it was. Um, and that ambivalence made um, operating there in pursuit, really, of of these kind of more marketized uh, policies and market actors, in pursuit or rather in support of them, um, tricky. Uh, I think Joseon Exchange was aided uh, by the fact that it was a Singapore-based organization, and um, Singapore, I think, will continue to or should have a role in any future engagements with North Korea as indeed it did politically with the first summit. Um, it's a place that's sort of broadly trusted. Everybody has access to it. Everybody utilizes its system for their ends and doesn't have the baggage for North Korea, especially that uh, its neighbors do. In uh, South, South Korea and Japan, perhaps overtly, and uh, China, less obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that makes sense. And were there kind of uh, other organizations that you were aware of that were doing similar things at a similar time? I mean, was this part of a picture of more general opening to uh, outside involvement or was Chosen Exchange a pretty uh, unique, sui generis entity? Uh, I would say quite unique. Um, there, there have been previous moments where North Korea seemed like maybe it was going to embark Upon a process of economic reform, um, the the early nineteen nineties, and then again around two thousand two three, um, and so there are plenty of NGOs that would um, got, got involved in those periods, but I think none so dedicated and committed to a single issue as Joseon Exchange, and then. By the time we were doing things, um, those other organizations had, <laughs> in some sense, been burned once or twice, and but were also less willing to commit resources. Um, at the end of the day, with aid in in general, North Korea is it's a really it's a small market and extremely difficult. Um, so, if you are an entity that has you know global aspirations or responsibilities you know you look at a range of problems around the world and north korea is just not that attractive (laughs) sure no i uh i guess that that uh is obvious in in terms of how aware anyone would be that such activities were going on because if they were going on on a larger scale then more people would assume that this was something that was doable it's a it's it's not just a suspicion and ignorance that makes people unaware that ngo activity is occurring perhaps right um, we we uh, for for example by the way uh we we got a little bit of money from a uh european government to run a few workshops and it took a lot of hoop jumping it was very complicated you know sanctions compliance and optics for for this government were big concern. This is just for for a few thousand dollars. Um, and as it was being given to us, the uh, the official said for us to send 
tens of millions of dollars to Afghanistan would have been much less work than this this ten thousand that we're we're giving you. And I think that that really hit home how how difficult a space it is for everyone, governments, NGOs, and certainly you know private sector business people. It's it's an inhospitable environment. Yeah, that's it's pretty striking. Um, I guess in that sense, from both the outside and and then once you're there too, right? Because you mentioned that uh, even once you've got together the funding and the operational sort of organizational elements of going in and, and, and organizing things, when you're there, and, and I guess this is where so much of the richness of this book comes out, you're exposed to lots of things which provide their own challenges. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the fact that you were there on this basis as, as a uh, person involved in NGO activity did give you a sort of long long durée repeated exposure uh, that allowed you in very obvious ways that or ways that are obvious from this book to derive lots of really telling insights about how society and culture operate here and, and why it was that I guess some of these other parallel organizations may have been burned um, one particularly interesting dimension or, or a sort of picture you paint is uh, in chapter four of uh, what you refer to in the chapter title as a walled society and some of these uh, kind of blockages or, or um, barriers that exist between a sort of inner and outer world, I guess, from a Korean standpoint. So could you say a bit more about what the kind of difficulties were that you encountered um, and how, how you know, this repeated exposure through traveling with Chosun Exchange gave you a deeper sense of what those were and where they came from than one might just automatically assume uh, you know, thinking of North Korea as somewhere that is different and, you know, uh, has has barriers to entry. Yeah, when you visit North Korea, uh, you are subject to rules that I think don't exist anywhere else in the world. Um, you are constantly monitored by what most people term minders, but really are often uh, partners or guides uh, to the work that you're, you're doing. And that can be a really cooperative relationship. Um, that said, those people are responsible for you. Uh, and anything you do there that is outside the lines will reflect poorly on, on them and can get them in trouble. So that's, that's sort of a mode of control I hadn't really thought of before, where you, your behavior has to ensure the safety of the people you work with. And indeed, you come to care about and many senses, many, many uh, instances. Um, then there's the sort of electronic or surveillance. That's So there's a lot of human surveillance um, up by those people you're working with, but also, you know, in the hotels you stay, stay in or on the street, you know, there's you know, people watching you, generally speaking. Um, then there's sort of this electronic wall uh, around you and certainly around any North Korean citizen, you know, North Koreans don't have access to the internet, certainly, or international media or, or uh, telephony. Um, while we would be there as foreigners, we could get um, North Korean SIM cards that did allow for internet access and internet uh, international calling, but would not allow calls to any North Korean no numbers other than other foreigners resident in North um, so such a step I don't think has been taken anywhere in the world ever um, other than in, in North Korea and I think illustrates the links that they're prepared to, to go to to limit contact between uh, visitors and, uh, and Koreans themselves um, yeah yeah so I guess a lot of these insights into broader questions about how one is surveilled or followed or the way that uh, monitoring occurs uh, of, of foreigners. This is this is something that lots of visitors to North Korea are very interested in. And I guess it's also something that you know, even casual tourists to the country, if there are such people, uh, are, are sort of fascinated by and constantly on the lookout for. Um, but your particularly privileged insight based on long-term repeat visits give you a lot deeper a sense, I think, of how the social structure and, 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 and how everyday life for Koreans um, underlies this kind of system of surveillance and, and this, uh, I guess, what you call an unconnected surveillance state, right? Reliant on a lot of um, 
human human activity rather than uh, technology and, and other kind of more, I guess, uh, yeah, twenty first century methods used in 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 countries across the world, but particularly intensely in, in neighboring China. So, could you say a bit more about how it was that your interaction with your partners and your cooperation with them, your collisions with them, I guess, because you also note various uh, difficulties you came across in trying to cooperate, gave you more of an insight into uh, society as it works and and the kind of lives that your partners were living uh, in the country. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that there's a couple couple things to say here. Like any functioning society, uh, if you want to call it that, um, it can't be 100% coercion. Uh, there needs to be an element of consent amongst the, the citizenry if it's going to run. <clears throat> and so you, you do see that. And in conversations, even with very skeptical North Koreans, very smart and, and you know, not necessarily credulous people, um, you, you can often hear um, the, the party line, quite, quite literally. And the way that uh, those party lines, I guess, become instilled in people is also, a, I think, a fascinating and, and uh, complex story. It, obviously, control of media is something we can see pretty easily as a casual observer of North Korea. It's obvious that their access to TV and to newspapers and books is controlled by the, the party in a way that doesn't take place anywhere else in the world today. Um, but then beneath that are a whole layer of institutions and practices uh, also unique to North Korea in today's day and age that we don't really get to, to see. Um, there are weekly study sessions uh, where every adult, right, from actually teenage years up, have to participate in uh, self-criticism and mutual criticism sessions, uh, as well as um, study particular policies or, or statements made by the leadership um, and if not analyze them, be able to uh, you know, reproduce them faithfully. Uh, and that, I kind of toggle between thinking that um, some, some of those practices are relatively uh, benign and not dissimilar to things that, that we do in our societies. Um, such as you know, press conferences or weekly uh, team team meetings at whatever institution you work with, but the conformity that it uh, pursues and installs, I think, is ultimately pretty pretty troubling. I think to certainly a Western observer. Um, and you, you, you kind of see it manifest uh, in people, uh, like I said, even skeptical people will, will say things that, uh, you know, very directly have come from uh, the party line. And other times, um, you, you, that said, rather, um, about those study sessions and other sort of institutional means of control, that they will speak only very vaguely to you as a foreigner, for the most part. Occasionally, you come across a North Korean who will be more open with you, kind of beyond what they're supposed to. But there is also this sort of guarded set of practices um, and institutions that they're really not supposed to talk to you about. Uh, and so, conversations about them are always are usually quite vague and uh, un- unsatisfying. Mm. I think that's absolutely one of the most interesting things about the book is is not just the insights uh, into the system and and or you know so- social practices, social norms, rules, mores, whatever else that that come out of your uh, your encounters or your your, your partnerships with Koreans uh, in the country, but the lack of desire on their part to even talk about the system. A kind of uh, it's a sort of double. Uh, difference in a way or a, a sort of doubly uh, removed kind of thing to try to get your head around because it's not just very different and difficult to understand 
you know, in its in itself, but it's also deliberately occluded from you by people who are not really prepared to speak directly about the thing that you might want to know about and also would help you perhaps to know about in order to understand why it was that a certain thing wasn't allowed or you know things were as they were uh you know uh, in your kind of yeah yeah in your in your daily life there um so yeah. i think that's a really really fascinating I, thing that you I, reflect I think, on yeah I, and i think if you sub- subscribe to uh, the theorizing of Foucault, um, you understand that there's an intimate, intimate relationship between knowledge and power. Perhaps, indeed, they're the same thing. Uh, and <laughs> even if the, the North Koreans are not postmodernists, uh, I, I think they clearly recognize that the ability to pr- produce knowledge about a place is a type of power. And so they've made it incredibly difficult for outsiders to uh, create that kind of knowledge and power over them, um, and it's part of the it's part of why they've survived, I think. Um, but they've also boxed themselves in uh, as well by this because they do have this system that that runs, and I think will continue to run for a long time uh, in this way. Even though a lot of people in that country would like to see something else. Um, but at the very top, I think there's a great deal of uncertainty about how to create that something else while maintaining stability. Um, I, I guess w- one thing that's happened is you end up with some sympathy for elites. I think a lot of the discourse about North Korea separates the ordinary people, the good guys, and the elites, the bad guys. Um, and uh, it's obviously more complicated than that. And amongst the privileged classes. You know, there is a lot of... There's been so much exposure to China over the past generation. A lot of people there, I think, really wish their country was just a bit more like China. I don't think anybody's, anybody's dreaming of, um, of much beyond that, but they, they want to see a more open version of the DPRK with more opportunity for themselves. Right. So, yeah, that portrait of uh, a society which um, has endured uh, well beyond what many people might have expected, I guess, takes us on to what kind of people from outside the country are attracted to or interested in it and the kinds of people that if you're involved in um, in, in North Korea related affairs, as, as you uh, were for many years, what sorts of other non-Korean people you meet. So could you say something about what sort of, you know, foreign people you you came across in your uh, work with Justin Exchange and um, and yeah and, and, and sort of what, what people they were yeah uh, colorful I guess um, <clears throat> would be a pretty kind <laughs> kind adjective to use um, it's you know it is a place that is on the margins of the global system uh, for several reasons um, and that kind of a place does attract um, you know, a particular kind of obsessive, I think. Um, there, <clears throat> there are kind of adventurers who, you know, are attracted to the challenge of, of knowing and experiencing this, uh, isolated country. Um, I think there's off, there's, a, there's also kind of a, a fervency amongst the, uh, kind of religious community. I think, um, in terms of proselytizing, it's like the ultimate hard target, right? This closed, avowedly atheist society. Um, and, uh, you know, then there, there are also a, a pretty small handful of uh, fellow travelers who, who like the idea that this small country is able to resist the, the West and the United States and do its own thing. Um, and you know, all these groups of people are, are interesting to, to spend time with. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess any listeners located in, uh, in Scandinavia or the UK might have seen this recent TV show, the mole, uh, a documentary about, um, I guess it, well, about many things, but among other things that focal point is these friendship organizations these associations which um as you say i guess attracts a certain 
kind of fellow traveler and at least as far as this documentary is concerned many of the people involved are men almost all men it would seem of a certain age um could you say more about your kind of encounters with with those groups since that does come up in the book well um <clears throat> you know there are my, my sense with them is is mo- first most of them have come to north korea out of some kind of anti-americanism uh, or suspicion of american uh, power um, and influence in the world, and uh, the curious thing is, is you know whatever skepticism about the United States they have, they arrive in North Korea, it seems, and then that skepticism just evaporates, and like ah oh, yeah, you know this 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 is the answer, um, uh, which I think is a curious phenomenon in indeed. Um, but then the the other thing is, you know these. These people generally, you know, they can form a, a little group and they can have uh, protocols and a bit of politicking and intrigue amongst their, you know, groups of eight or nine guys uh, in the whatever the, the Danish or or uh, British Friendship Society, wherever it is. Um, and then every couple of years or so, they go to North Korea and they get given a medal and uh, they get taken around in these kind of special buses and feel feel important. Um I think there's a lot of people, not just in friendship groups, who who get that from North Korea, and I would not exclude myself from that um, either, um, because of this difficult to understand and weird country. You know, I've gotten to go on TV, and I've gotten a book out, and I get to go on the most illustrious podcasts in the world of Asian books, um, and you know that feels feels pretty gratifying and so i th- i think um that happens to a lot of people too whether in the media or even in the ngo sector if or there's there's plenty of former diplomats who who also or even current diplomats i remember a, a british diplomat telling me being posted in pyongyang is pretty great because everybody is interested in what you have to say and you know people from other capitals in the world want to fly you in and have have you give briefings and uh you, so you, you get to um, you, you get attention. Mm. I mean, and, and you discuss some of your, I guess, uh, well, the, the kind of conflicts you had where you were included among some of these groups where they might have been very willing to say whatever it was that you know their hosts wanted them to say about their respect for the leadership and so on. Whereas in your position. Uh, it was much more difficult to, I mean, not just because of what you actually think, but also because of what you were doing there. Um, why do you think it is that the Korean side is so interested in these groups? Uh, in a sense, as you say, if if these are people who arrive, their skepticism evaporates and they're, they're paraded around and treated quite well. What What is it? What's in it for the Korean side, in your opinion, I mean, there's kind of there's a domestic propaganda element um, which I, I think operates pretty well. You know, groups of foreigners coming and and saying uh, positive things about the country. Um, but I think there was an international propaganda element during the Cold War that um, you know friendship groups could provide a voice and advocate for North Korea and in other you know fora and other countries uh, that I don't think really works anymore. And indeed, like these friendship groups are not really made up of um, particularly, I think, compelling uh, debaters or uh, or people. <laughs> um, and uh, they, in some ways, internationally, I think, are more of a liability to North Korea. But there is there is this kind of system of cultivating these friendship groups um, that still exist and like can't really seem to walk away from it um, i think what it meant for us working in north korea is these groups were constantly trying to or some of them uh were keen to get us in trouble um for not being ideologically uh pure uh and you know there, there were certainly times in which uh they would tell on us for uh <laughs> for Oh, podcasts or um, things that we published in the in the outside world, they would report back to the North Koreans, and then we would have to explain uh, next time we visited. 
Mm. Yeah, it's a pretty curious set of dynamics uh, all told, I think. Um, but it's also fair to say that the book offers a more nuanced sense of of inside and outside because I think uh, so much, uh, so many column inches, so much bandwidth is occupied by a sort of North Korea and the West or something dynamic. Um, but you also give uh, important attention to, for example, uh, Korean Japanese uh, who are connected to North Korea that uh, among the Zainichi community in Japan uh, have historic ties and also uh, some of the uh, resident Chinese population you also touch on um, who are, you know, uh, ch- Chinese sort of, uh, I guess they retain Chinese citizenship, but still live in North Korea. Is yeah, that correct? Yeah. I think just both absolutely fascinating groups, right? Um, citizens or, or at least denizens on the margins of a society that's on the margins of global society. Um I don't know these are two groups that you both have experience with as well, having lived in Yanji, where I first met you, the, the near border city where you know, China and North Korea and Russia meet, uh, and then also in, in Japan as well. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I think un- understanding their experience is interesting in and of itself, but um, I think also helps to understand. Um, the North Korean state's mindset a little bit uh, as well uh, in terms of inclusion and occlusion from, you know, who gets to be uh, North Korean. Um, I had a couple, you know, Japanese uh, friends who grew up in the the North Korean Japanese school system, and I learned a a lot from them. Well, I think they're sort of these communities also help us to understand that North Korea is actually a place that has a uh, a geographical as well as a geopolitical location and it has a cultural uh, situation among neighbors it's not complete it's not it's not nearly as cut off from things as as one would assume looking at you know uh, a, a, a very macro level relationship between um, I guess Western countries from which some of these friendship group foreigners come from and, and North Korea actually, you know, it's it's easier to understand how it is like it is. You know, however unusual it is, it's easy to see how it got there by understanding more of the, um, I guess, transnational ed- elements of, of historical Japanese empire, of, of neighboring with China, um, and then, of course, the history of, uh, yeah, these other socialist states that you mentioned that have been next door for um, much of the 20th century. You know, it's not something that exists as some complete uh, figment or, or apparition out of nowhere in the way that it might look in the 21st century. Um, but yeah, I, I, if we move forward to talking a little bit more about your kind of actual activities with these workshops, because in a sense, there was a great deal of richness, I think, uh, that, that, that evidently came your way from that as regards uh, insight into some of the personal characters of, of many of the people you were interacting with. Um, you talk about a kind of conflict, a kind of constant dissonance between some of these state-level messagings and, uh, I guess, um, propaganda and so on, and aspirations on the on the, on the more personal level and the de- desire among many people to, to change their country and, of course, to do well for themselves as individuals. So could you say a bit more about the, the sort of workshops how they unfolded um and the and the these these flashes of of, of dissonance which emerged were that were the people you were interacting with all born entrepreneurs or was it a big mix or you know could you say more about those people yeah i mean broadly speaking um after or rather during during the famine uh people really had to figure out how to make money and survive uh on on their own and uh, so by the time, you know, we got there, there was well over a decade of experience in, uh, in a business environment that is often uh, ambiguous, uh, often opaque, often full of barriers, both, you know, over and, and subtle. Um, and so a lot of the time felt like, you know, these people that we were trying to educate, you know, they knew how to run a business in their system better than we ever could. Uh, but there are huge knowledge gaps because, you know, they'd learned things on their own and generally didn't have much experience with the outside world in order to compare. Um, 
so there was i think a lot of gap filling that we were we were trying to do um in in terms of dissonance um you know the i think one thing that is overlooked and you you mentioned how you know north korea didn't you know just hasn't just appeared in the 21st century as this nuclear problem but does have this uh history and and regional experience that informs its society and politics um and in that vein they kind of have a national story that i think a lot of people basically buy into even the skeptical and cynical people i've referenced before probably generally buy into the idea that the koreans are basically a good people that have been uh beset by uh untrustworthy and you know capricious foreigners throughout their history and the DPRK's struggle is a righteous one against outside influence all they want to do is live their life their their own way um build their own socialism you know just leave us alone get out that's sort of a, <laughs> a macro narrative and I, th- I think that resonates with a lot of people um but then you know in the details of their lives i think often uh, what they're told in the the media and through these other uh, propagandizing channels and doesn't really line up and uh, I think and I'm not a psychologist uh, but I, I think you, you can either deal with that by confronting it which in that system can be extremely dangerous uh, you can um, or, or you can find ways to ignore it um, and that's, I think, what, what people generally have to do. It's like, well, okay, you know, I can see in my own personal life that the state is constantly erecting barriers to my success. Um, but in the propaganda, uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be a part of this seamless system of trust between leaders and the ordinary populace. Um, and I think that can be... And that can be quite difficult. Um, I also think it's part of the reason that it is important to try and have as much interaction between North Koreans and the outside world as, as possible because if they learn about foreigners and propaganda and what you can present uh, as a foreigner in North Korea can be quite quite different. And I think there are opportunities to challenge, you know, what people have been taught. Uh, you don't, you don't win necessarily against a lifetime of propaganda, but I think you can move the needle a lot of the time. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and it's interesting to hear sort of for, or read in the book how uh, the sort of strategies you had to deploy varied based on what it was you were trying to communicate. Um, you obviously uh, noted many instances in which the propaganda or the sort of state-level thing impinges on some of the most, you'd think, fr- sort of... Uh, casual or fraternal uh, kind of aspects of your uh, relationships there, for example, not being able to have lunch, not being permitted to have lunch together with workshop participants, Um, you know, the rules which sort of seem to be handed on from on high, but, you know, as though to suggest that lunch itself is uh, an ideological threat to the whole edifice. Um, But uh, you also, yeah, talk about strategies you sort of deployed to introduce ideas that might have been difficult otherwise for example talking about sino-north korean relations which are sort of a moot topic uh, and also the idea of crowdsourcing so could you say if anything more about these sorts of uh, ways that you had of during these workshops with your workshop leaders brought in from outside the country uh, approach some of these more difficult topics yeah so some of our workshops were focused on economic policy uh, rather than kind of business skills uh, and one uh, workshop leader wanted to talk about um, trade deficits and and the uh, balance of trade between countries uh, and really wanted to talk about uh, the relationship between North Korea and China. Um, doing so would be extremely sensitive uh, to the point where if we wanted any in- interaction with the, the audience, we just wouldn't have got, got it. Um, so what he did, I think, very cleverly was he abstracted it and ended up talking about two different 
islands, big island and a small island uh, and their trading relationship. And because it was abstracted, that allowed the North Koreans to engage and share their thoughts about, you know, what the small island should uh, should do in order to uh, survive and have a healthy economy. And um, everybody in the room knew exactly <laughs> what we were talking about. Um, but, you know, we were able to create a fiction that allowed for that engagement. Um, sim- similarly, uh, and a bit more broadly, talking about business, I think, allowed um, us to discuss sensitive topics like leadership and organizational structure uh, and efficiency, you know, versus uh, equality um, in a way that if we were talking about politics, certainly, or other aspects of society just would have been completely unacceptable. So I think, uh, you know, right now we're in in a period of time where there's the least engagement ever, I think, between North Korea and the outside world. Um, but when opportunities for engagement present themselves again, some years down the road, probably, uh, I think it is probably going to be a useful strategy to think about these topics or sets of issues where the North Koreans can discuss things like uh, like human rights and economic policy and the other things that occur uh, important to us in ways that are politically safe for them. Um, but that we have some time to ponder that because um, I I think COVID uh, will keep them closed for at least another year, and then um, right now, as we record this, the the um, Eighth Party Congress is taking place in North Korea, and the signs are that uh, there will be, for the foreseeable future, a bit of a hard line when it comes to the, their nuclear policy in the United States. So um, uh, we'll we'll see. There's obviously a lot of uncertainty uh, elsewhere as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. And and so I guess the kind of narrative arc of the book moves us from your early trips there and your first sort of moves uh, and, and cooperation with uh, Jeffrey C and setting up the Chosun Exchange workshops and things to a later stage at which point you're, I think uh, it's fair to say, a little, <laughs> a little exasperated, a little exhausted by uh, some of the challenges of what this uh, operation involves. Um, some of that comes out in your... Um, uh, running of workshops uh, in another location other than Pyongyang, where many of them were, up in the northeast in, in Rasson, uh, which is next door to this area that you've already mentioned, Yenji and, and this uh, Chinese border region. Um, so what was what was different about doing things up there? And I guess this is a, a region of the country which is nominally a, a special economic zone, I mean, not just nominally, but, you know, and is. Um, what, what's uh, What was different about being there? And, and what's your sort of sense of where uh, the country has looked at uh, how the how the government has looked at these special economic zones and these sorts of arrangements in recent years yeah well in in 2012 and 2013 they started promulgating this special economic zone policy which we thought was very positive um not because any of these zones uh were uh particularly groundbreaking or even that they were doing this policy well uh but it showed that they were thinking i think in the right direction um so we um, we started trying to do uh, workshops in Rasan and in a couple of these other SCZs. Uh, that allowed us access to kind of a slightly different class of people than we would run into in Pyongyang. So more you know regional officials or regional business people uh, who um, you know their environment is quite different to the glittering capital of Pyongyang. Um, Rasan uh, has been uh, an SEZ since the, the mid '90s. Um, it is therefore better off than most other places outside of the capital city, and there is a, a sl- there. There's a slightly greater comfort with foreigners being there. Mm, that said, you know it is still North Korea. Um, the same rules apply basically for the most part in terms of minders and um, international telephony, that kind of thing. Um, you've, you've been there as well though, right? And 
Yeah, I went with uh, some Chinese tourists to uh, to have a look around, um, and uh, yeah, I mean it's a, it's very scenic and uh, an appealing yeah. place to go just to look at, and and um, yeah, particularly interesting part of that that coastline that I guess continues all the way up to to the fur- the furthest eastern part of Russia as well. Yeah, um, it's re- it's really beautiful, and you can see the tourist potential if it were a more you know accessible place um, if they'd invested in infrastructure and relax the rules a little bit so it was easier for people to go and in, in a way that sort of that's how i feel about the whole whole country uh you know there is there is a lot of potential there that is um that is just constrained um one one anecdote about rasan if i may share that i think illustrates mm, uh, we i think we implied that the the people in the friendship groups that you know often come through uh, North Korea and engage in dialogues or whatever with people are not necessarily the uh, the, uh, the <laughs> that good at talking or doing or living uh, successfully in the West. Um, I for one workshop in Rasan, um, I took people who were doing extremely well in the West uh, from. Basically, people who had worked in the biggest investment banks and uh, consultancies in the world, um, and we were running this workshop, and it was suddenly cancelled. And these people travelled all the way from Europe, mind. So, you know, they they'd gone a long way to deliver this workshop. And after the first day, suddenly we were told that all the participants had to go do uh, rice planting. Um, and that phenomena is not uncommon in North Korea, mobilizing office workers to go down to the farms and, and help out happens. But usually if there's uh, some kind of foreign engagement, foreign program, you know, that's a pretty good excuse to get out of it. Um, for some reason that didn't happen. And I don't know if these people really had to go rice planting or if somebody suddenly grew suspicious of us and decided to pull the plug or, well, I'll never know. But I did take a minute to chastise our partners, knowing that they would, you know, have, or hoping at least that they would put it in their report that, you know, we had brought basically some of the world's most successful people to to come to their special economic zone, and this was their chance to impress them and uh, send them away, thinking, okay, you know, there are some opportunities here, you know, maybe this place is changing for the better, and instead, you know, they're going to go away with this anecdote of this crazy basket case of a country that can't even um, facilitate a two-day workshop to talk about SEZ policy. Um, and, you know, those the people I was chastising, you know, they, they shrugged and were like, yeah, what can I, you know, it's out of my hands. What can I do? Uh, I think that's, a, <laughs> that's a, also a pretty common uh, survival attitude that's adopted by North Koreans. So much is out of your hands. And when things go badly and ba- these barriers are erected to your success, you know, you can't dwell on them and become enraged. You just have to accept them and try and move on. Yeah. And I, I guess uh, that, yeah, that in a, in a sense encapsulates much of the broader, I think, social dynamics, which you very ably trace throughout the, throughout the book as a whole, as well as, um, as already mentioned, representing a, a kind of pivotal point perhaps in your own personal uh you know uh, i guess what journey or something reflect set of reflections about the country and your your view on whether or not it was something you wanted to continue to do um we won't have time necessarily to get into much detail about it really now but uh, obviously i'd encourage listeners to, to look further into the book for amazing uh insights into what the experiences of some of the north koreans you brought out of North Korea were yeah. as well, reciprocally taking them to China, to Singapore, and so on. Um, yeah. But I guess, I guess, perhaps we can kind of bring begin to wrap things up by returning to this general topic of the, uh, I guess, the role of, of of outsiders or the view that outsiders have of the country. Um, I mean, clearly, to visits visitors on a one off basis like your workshop participants or workshop leaders on that trip to Rasson where they were sort of <laughs> yeah, thwarted by people needing to go and plant rice, that's going to leave a pretty deep impression and isn't going to break down any stereotypes about what the right. place is like. Um, but you do offer some reflections at the end of the book about uh, your kind of uh, position and, and 
I guess, a longer tradition of uh, observations of Korea at large. So could you say something about what it is you think that still influences us and and contemporary views of North Korea about these older uh, perceptions of the country and, and where you see yourself in it? Yeah, there's there's uh, certainly a long tradition, not just in Korea, of course, of uh, Westerners uh, with more wealth and power going and the, and uh, creating knowledge about these places for audiences uh, back home that then in turn influences how others perceive and act towards these places. Um, and, you know, North, uh, Korea, rather, um, was certainly one of these locations where um, that took place, partly because it, it was it was a closed um, country through much of the, um, and until towards the end of the 19th century. Um, and uh, it's it's difficult to avoid. I mean, there's there's kind of a, a this sort of trap of Orientalism where uh, you can't avoid being where you're from and uh, being from a particular position that that is necessarily subjective. Um, and I think the best you can kind of do is try to be aware of what that subjective position is and uh, fess up to it as you t- try to describe uh, a place that you're not from. And I know you have experience uh, with this as well. Um, I don't know if you think there are satisfying solutions to the problem of Orientalism, um, but at the end of the book, I at least try to acknowledge that you know I'm a, a, a Western guy from a you know, relatively privileged background, and I'm going to uh, an impoverished and very foreign and difficult to understand place. And I'm going to explain it to you, dear reader. Uh, and that's, that's what's happening here. So I, being, being honest about that dynamic, I don't know, perhaps it was just, just a, way, a way to solve my conscience. I don't know. No, well, I think it's something that features throughout the text too. I mean, you describe one, what, what I think one aspect of, of your interactions, which uh, is, is very instructive too, is your own negotiation of, being someone with a, uh, you know, I guess background in the UK and uh, a kind of Armenian heritage and and also obviously US uh, based too. So the the way that you talk about how uh, you approached revealing your own or or you know framing your own identity um, and what the likely responses to that might have been, I think uh, yeah, it's an important kind of way of positioning yourself and and not claiming to be offering an account from nowhere you know a sort of neutral nominally dispassionate you know story about what what goes on there isn't there isn't that doesn't exist um and i think uh, your clarity throughout is uh, extremely useful in in at least knowing it knowing what it is you're likely to say about the place or uh knowing knowing who we're listening to here and whether or not we choose to <laughs> choose to believe it or trust in the information in there yeah um, yeah yeah i guess yeah perhaps that's part of it giving giving the reader a, a chance to assess whether or not i'm credible by kind of being honest about the, the position i'm i'm coming from and with with regard to what you just referenced uh north koreans would ask where i, I was from um and uh i would always start with well my my dad is armenian and they'd be like oh armenia former ussr we love that I'd be like, but he was born in Iran. You know, his family had been there for several generations. Iran, we love Iran. Great country, anti-American, good stuff. And I might be like, well, but uh, I grew up in Britain, so I'm British. And I'd be like, oh, uh, okay. And then only very, very rarely would I <laughs> reveal that the, 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 I was also American. And um, uh, that felt deceptive. Uh, and I guess it was um but i kind of felt like a necessary way to to try and to to the north korean audience to be like hey this is sort of my background or this these are parts of my background but i want you to understand uh, mm. no absolutely and, and i guess uh 
approaching the text as a, uh, a sort of artifact of, of your own uh, <laughs> your own whatever cultural uh, st- standpoint is it's itself very interesting I think when it when it uh, comes to looking at it as an interaction with a country which self-identifies as pretty unitary and, and uniform and, and I think goes to great efforts to uh, assert a sort of uh, relatively um, homogenous um, exterior and one which in which people are encouraged also not to uh, embody things as complex as a uh, Armenian, Iranian, yeah. British, American set of characteristics. That's a, that's a really that's an interesting observation because they do want this unity of identity. Uh, they they really try to impose that on on their people, and so like being a person who is you know clearly not that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder. I wonder to what extent people pondered on that. Yeah, well, there's I guess yeah evidence of difficult. Difficulties in legibility in both directions <laughs> throughout the book, um, which uh, I should say is an excellent, uh, excellent book. Very readable, very engaging. And, uh, been a, that would have been a good title. Been, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe next time. Um, anyway, Andre, um, I don't want to take up any more of your time today. Uh, so I just want to say thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. It was uh, great to have a chance to talk to you about this book. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Uh, listeners, thank you too, uh, if you've got this far, to uh, for listening to uh, New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.